Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 14th, 2022. It's Arbor Day! Or as we call it, the Gentile Tubishvat. Anyway, uh, I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary, with me as always. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, our friend, our advertiser, our sage, our guru on all things economic, David Bonson of the Bonson Group. Hi, David. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, John. Good to be with you all. So, David, we wanted you to come on because, of course, yesterday, formally, the world decided that we were in a bear market, uh, not that there is such a thing as you know, a bell goes off and it's like, bong, we're in a bear market. We're now officially in a bear market. There's no such thing as an official bear market. Um, but uh, but I guess conventional wisdom has it that that uh, that uh, some Rubicon was crossed into uh, 20% down off the market high and therefore we're in a bear market. And uh, it's a moment when the uh, liberal media that have been desperately trying to kind of downplay or down whatever do some offer some cover for the nature of the um, economic woes that Biden and the Democrats find themselves in are giving up the ghost and saying, oh, man, this is bad. Things are bad and they're not going to get much better anytime soon. And who boy and. Batten down the hatches um, if you're, uh, you know, one of our people, because uh, nothing, no good news is going to come our way. Um, So, David, since this is the world in which you literally make your living and in which you, you know, uh, have conducted a, you know, close study for many years. What does it mean to be in a bear market other than that we're down 20%? Like, what, what, why, why did the New York Times' website have bear market in sort of as almost like a headline, like it's Black Monday and the, mar- and the stock market has gone down 2,000 points? Well, so first we'll just start with the question as far as the definition of a bear market. Ironically, there is very good clarity on what a bear market is. Uh, when you enter one, it's on a closing basis, the peak to trough being down 20%. So it's kind of a weird deal that I don't get that caught up with in the semantics. But in the summer of 2011, and again, in uh, the fourth quarter of 2018, technically, there was a point where from an intraday high to an intraday low, two times the market did get down 20, but it didn't close down 20 and so we don't call it in the almanac, so to speak, a bear market. Um, what there isn't total clarity on is when you exit a bear market, is some people consider it when you um, recover the um, old high, and some people consider it when you get back to that point where the prior thing had started, and the uh, back up to that low point where you're not down 20 anymore, right? And So all I could say about the media here is I, in financial media, am used to everything being doom and gloom and everything being overwrought. It's their business model to act as if every gyration is uh, some form of Armageddon. Ratings are significantly higher at CNBC, Bloomberg, and Fox Business in bad times and much lower in good times. And that's just part of human nature, I suppose. 
But from the New York Times standpoint, I, I do think there's probably a benefit to the Democrats in a bear market coming in the second year of a presidency versus the third year, um, which is generally fatal. But I don't know that any of that really matters that much. And I don't know that any of these people are smart enough to be thinking um, you know, with some sort of political edge around how the timing of it could help. All of it's bad for the present administration. And in terms of the relevance to regular people who are not impacted in their portfolio, the, there's a debate as to whether or not a bear market is the um, effect of a recession, or in some cases, the cause of a recession. The only time in my career and in my study of history, which in this case, I've studied it exhaustively back to the depression, the only time that you could make a plausible argument that a bear market caused a recession, as opposed to recession causing a bear market, would be out of dot-com. That the impact of the dot-com blow up was so severe that then combined with other accounting scandals and Enron and WorldCom and, and just some other things that were going on, even in a reasonably healthy economy, that you ended up having a mild recession in 2002 in the aftermath of that stock market's bear market, which by the way, lasted two and a half years. That was quite a long one. It's the longest one of my career. So I think it's relevant, um, but in this particular case, and I'm sorry for the long answer, the NASDAQ and the real frothy stuff, you know, crypto is now down over 60%. That's 10 times a bigger story. Um, right. the, Dow, the Dow was down 16% as of yesterday. The average drawdown in a regular year is 10 to 12%. So I don't think there's anything extraordinary going on yet. But the question is, how much will the Fed have to break something in order to accomplish whatever their policy objectives are. So there's forward-looking ambiguity, and that's the bigger story. I, I just wanted to, looking back at the, you know, what, what, what have, I guess the classic number is that since the Depression, or including the Depression, there have been seven full-blown bear markets. Yeah. So uh, this, this would be the eighth. So already, that's pretty staggering, because we are, you know, we are, 90 years off the depression it's not like oh you know every three years there's a bear market like settle down like this is not this is a notable thing the thing that was most notable to me about it going back and looking at the bear markets you know in the last 40 years is that there was a preceding event or some form of preceding event cataclysm uh, thunderclap that, you know, that in retrospect is sort of either the cause or whatever it is, right? So you have, uh, you know, Black Monday uh, in 1987, you have the collapse of the Soviet Union or, you know, the sort of the, enti the entire world change uh, created by the Gulf War and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. You had the dot-com bubble burst. You had 9-11. Uh, which was, you know, uh, th that was sort of the same recession, <laughs> kind of. Uh, and then you had the financial meltdown, and then you had the pandemic. Now we have this thing, and it seems to be entirely the result, not of a thunderclap, but of bad policy accreting over the space of a couple of years that in which the chickens have come home to roost. Does that strike you as an accurate rendering? Somewhat, but I just think that's very analogous to 2000. 
So I would consider this to be the most similar to what we experienced in the year 2000. The other way to put it is that everyone you described, and there's a lot more that belong in that list if you count um, intraday times that the market dropped 20%. You know, we were down 20 in 2011 with the Greek debt crisis. Right. And in 2018, there was the China trade war. And, and the last time the Fed did quantitative tightening, um, there's never, ever, ever been a bear market that wasn't either a recession, which is most of the time, or a bubble bursting. And that's what this is. And that's what dot-com was. So even though the S&P is down 21%, Dow's down 16 crypto's down 60. Those so-called work-from-home stocks, your Pelotons and Zooms and DoorDashes and DocuSigns are down 60, 70, 80. And it's not just the lower quality, no earnings, small and mid-cap names. Facebook's down 60. Netflix is down 72. Amazon's down 50. That FANG stuff has gotten hammered. This is a bubble bursting bear market, very similar to the year 2000. But we are in a weird place. This is my, my, the final point I make, which is we had a recession in 2020, engine, an engineered, you know, d- deliberately engineered recession, t- depriving you know, the world of economic oxygen in order to kill off the pandemic. And we know how wildly successful that was as a strategy. But in other words, we're sort of like, either this is accelerating, we had this in 2020, and now we have something like this in 2022. Of course, the stock market recovery in 2020 to 2021 was astounding, right? I mean, it was, we got up to 30, almost 36,000, right? Or we over, got, we over, hit thir- well, over 36,000, 36, having dropped to 28, I think, I think at the, at the <laughs> to 18. No, Oh, excuse me, 18. Did I say 28? We got to 18. We doubled the market. The, the down number doubled in a year. No, so, no, no. But, but, but in fairness, okay, though, yeah, it yeah. was at 18 okay. for a week. Uh, right. like it came back yeah. to 22 within a couple right. of days. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I want to explore, David, this idea of, a, of a, a bubble bursting, as you say. Because when I think of a bubble bursting housing market, the dot-com market, I think of commodities or industries that are overvalued, um, that have uh, acquired more value in the market than than they're worth and what we're staring at down the barrel of now is something more akin to 1981 right an engineered recession in order to uh to restore price stability because demand is declining right so it's not as though we have a particular overvalued asset it's just that every val every asset is overvalued vis-a-vis american purchasing power Okay, so you're bringing up a great point, but I do disagree. But it's it's more that these things work in tandem, Noah. The first order is that there was a severe overvaluation. Zoom was worth more than Exxon. In what world is that not a bubble of Zoom? <laughs> okay, um, so what has happened is the second order effect is what you're describing. But if you take out the market impact and weight it, weight it to market cap weighting. We're not in a bear market only from the second order effects, what you're describing. In other words, the devaluation, the, the change in the risk-free rate, the two year is up to two and a half to 3%, the 10 years up above 3%. So the Fed beginning this tightening, raising rates and what that's done to compress all asset prices. Everything you said in the second part of your point, I agree with but that has not gotten close to down 20% yet. So look at the Dow as sort of a, um, 
a proxy here. If the Dow is kind of normal stuff, real economy stuff, traditional and historical, with a little bit of tech and things thrown in, um, th then you see that that's down, you know, the 10 to 15%. What makes the overall deal bear market like? The NASDAQ being down 35%. And I do believe there was a grotesque overvaluation. One of the, I mean, overvaluation with crypto, it's not like it should have been worth X and it was worth three X. I don't know if X should be worth anything at all. <laughs> and, and so right. the Beanie Babies and the Pets.coms and those things, the jury's still out if we're not having to liquidate things down to zero. That's one of the problems in the market now is people go, oh my God, Amazon's down 50%. And I go, yeah, do you want to look at its PE ratio now? It's still 58 times earnings. Yeah. Now. Well, well, this is what one of the interesting things about bubbles is the, the paradigm shift that happens instantaneously. I mean, Netflix is, I think, the most salient example I think that I've ever seen. The facts surrounding Netflix's business and how it functioned were exactly the same the day before they announced that their subscriber numbers were disappointing in the first quarter as they were the day after. I mean, granted, if they had announced that they had a 15% jump in subscriber numbers, what happened wouldn't have happened. But suddenly, everything about Netflix was there in front of your, you know, they were a company worth an astonishing number of times what their revenues were, they were, their losses were growing in order to capture market share. And all of that was good until suddenly, not only was it bad, but it was fatal. It was near fatal. The entire concept of the previous 10 years in the future of streaming and all of that suddenly was no longer the future. And it took, I mean, because I read the entertainment press very closely, it took an hour. It took an hour for the conventional wisdom to shift 720 degrees. But see, the, but John, the point I yeah. would make though is that that's only known with hindsight. In the time that Netflix went up 10X, so Netflix had gone up a thousand percent. There were six times that Netflix had dropped a lot and it lasted about two days. And, and so this is only different because now with hindsight, we can see that this drop had staying power. I think it was a combination of three things. A, Netflix was priced for perfection and that perfection was now vulnerable. B, the overall environment for risk assets changed. All the thing that's affecting all of this tech heavy NASDAQ stuff was putting downward pressure on multiples. But then three, HBO Max and Peacock and Disney Plus and Apple Plus, all of a sudden people go, you know what? Not every family is going to have 13 streaming services right. at 10 to 20 bucks a month. Like, I don't even know how many streaming services yeah. I have and my kids have and are double subscribed and triple. We don't even know. But budget conscious families, I think that they are making cuts and Netflix has to spend tens of billions of dollars on content and all of a sudden they haven't really had a great hit so i think the fundamentals did okay. change a little but i agree with you that when it changed it was rapid but that always happens with high multiple stocks that when the narrative finally does change 
it's never a one or two week type deal because remember, these are now hugely owned in ETFs. Right. So just as buying pressure on ETFs gave them a basement in their stock price, now downward pressure in ETFs means there's a continued forced selling of these high market cap stocks. It's hurt Facebook and Amazon even more than Netflix. But to get to the sort of political economy questions, and I think Noah was getting at this, like, are we anticipating, there are two ways of looking at, say, that there's going to be a sort of a mild recovery today after the big announcement of the bear market yesterday, which is, is this happening in anticipation, is that market recovery in anticipation of the Fed announcing a shock and awe number where it increases the rate by 75 basis points? Or is the knowledge that the Fed is about to take a role in doing something that may engineer a recession part of the cause of the bear market? It can't both be a cause of the crash and the recovery at the same time, can it? I mean, essentially, there are two ways of looking at this, which is that, all right, the belt is tightening. We're in for a lot of pain, batten down the hatches, start selling and going into cash. Things aren't going to look good. Or thank God the Fed is coming in and is going to try to provide a soft landing. The grownups are now coming back in charge. It's no longer Biden and the Democrats just being psychotic. And now we can get a little more comfortable. But these are I, these are contradictory views, right? Yeah, but so far, this bear market has been much more like 2000, where it has not been selling to cash. It's been what we call a sector rotation, growth to value. I mentioned to you guys before we started recording that we're up on the year at my firm. Now, we manage dividend growth stocks, so we don't own a lot of crypto sex appeal. We don't own a lot of pets.com type stuff in 2022. And so owning more stable businesses that are growing free cash flows may be kind of boring in the FANG spike of a few years ago, but on the year, a little bit over half of the companies we own, admittedly, we would not be up on the year if it were not for energy. It's our largest weighting and it's the only positive performing sector in the market. So that has definitely helped. But my point is you've seen more people go out of crap into quality then you've seen go out of crap into cash. Ah, okay. Um, well, let's talk about energy because that's, of course, you know, that that is the all of it. And we have the announcement, the formal announcement today that President Biden is going to go to Saudi Arabia in, in July, you know, which is really when you want to be in Saudi Arabia. Nothing like taking a nice visit to the center of the, you know, Sahara Desert. In, in, I know it's not the Sahara. You want to go? With, you want to go to the Rub Al Khali in July, um, but uh, he's going in July. He's going to Israel first. There's a lot of speculation that there's a grand bargain that may be uh, in the offing, uh, which would be very interesting, geopolitically interesting, obviously. But clearly, he's going to do send some signal about energy, and. My question is, is that the sort of thing that isn't the market sophisticated enough to know that he goes and they may they they have some rapprochement and all that? But if he doesn't change his general approach on domestic energy, 
will him getting the Saudis to be nicer or we have a nicer relationship with the Saudis that has degraded since, you know, Trump left office. And is that, uh, are people going to credit that and sort of think, oh, well, that's good. Now, now things are on, on the upswing and, and, and that horrible gas price number at my station is going to come down. Yeah. Um, you know, with markets right now, the challenge is that most people are trying to guess what other people are trying to guess. And with what your question, I'm torn between what I think could come of this and what I think they think could come of this. <laughs> the, I think the objectives that the Biden administration has are deeply flawed. And yet I don't believe that they actually think they can get Saudi to start producing more oil um, from, a, from a charm offensive. I mean, at the end of the day, Saudi is perhaps the most self-interested actors on the planet, far more so than Putin and Russia, um, who might have geopolitical strategic objectives, but are really willing to work against their own economic self-interest for prolonged periods of time. Saudi has shown very little ability to do that. They attempted to flood the world with oil in late 2014 through mid 2015 to bankrupt shale. And they ran into like Blackstone and KKR and figured out, wow, American private equity is not going to let us bankrupt shale. And they gave up in six months. Um, I don't believe that the Biden administration has a specific plan going into this meeting. But the one thing I'd be fearful of because I shared the similar foreign policy objectives that you three have, I, if it is more than just a half-hearted attempt to get Saudi to turn the wells back on, um, that would concern me more. I believe it is good for us to have this semi-adversarial relationship with Saudi. I believe in foreign policy driven by moral clarity. And for Biden to go backwards on that, he's not going to get an environmental benefit, you know, telling the greenies that Saudi's doing dirty production instead of Oklahoma is not going to help much. Um, he's not really going to get any lower oil prices. By the way, you know, oil today is up another 2%. It's up 5% since this meeting was announced. It's up 20% since they started releasing from strategic petroleum reserves. And all of that is three months after Putin invaded Ukraine. So nothing they're doing is really helping. The real solutions are only U.S. production-based, as you said, John. But um, I worry that they actually want to heal what has gone wrong in the relationship between US and Saudi for 20 years, exacerbated during the Obama administration by American fracking success and by Arab Spring. I think that fundamentally US and Saudi had, let's call it um, 60 years of a relationship that has totally fallen apart in 10 years. And I see that as a net positive, And I worry that the Biden administration may want to reverse that. I think it already has reversed. Uh, and I, I would push back a little bit on some of your assumptions here, David, because this meeting was preceded by a June 2nd announcement by OPEC Plus, led by the kingdom, to re increase 
production by roughly 50%. That's hundreds of thousands, half a million barrels from Russia, many more from Saudi Arabia and, and members no, of the that cartel was already, generally. That was already agreed to before June 2nd. All they did June 2nd is maintain the commitments they had planned before, which are still less than 2019. The, the administration had been begging for years, for uh, over the course of a year, since at least early August, to have this fig leaf as well as a truce on the peninsula with Yemeni rebels in right. exchange for this for this fig leaf of a, of a visit that signals the end of their campaign to anathematize oh, I the, agree. the kingdom and, and uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So if you're talking about this as just simply a series of, of diplomatic gestures that that amount to nothing. I would I would push back on that. I don't I don't we're talking about many, many well, I don't millions think David of barrels thinks amount of See, oil I, that'll that will have no effect yeah. on price stability and, and the price of an energy that affects every other price of every other good which is already soaring. I don't know if that's not if that's true. And a real politique approach to this to to our energy conundrum, our financial conundrum leads to, to one of two places. Either you do what the administration has previously been doing, which is cozying up to um, Caracas. And bringing the Maduro regime back in from the cold and Iran and trying to bring their energy back online, or you go to OPEC, you don't have other options, particularly when the financial environment, yeah, you investment have a third environment the investment yeah, environment yeah, yeah, in the United Texas. States for shale, oh, yeah. I'm finish. the investment environment for shale has been cold for the last four or five years, follow it rather closely. It's, it's a long range investment opportunity and it hasn't been generating return. And so the VC has dried up for shale in this country. Uh, maybe it's no, loosening VC... up now because of the high prices, but it hasn't been okay, there for years. Okay, yeah. but two, no, that, two that's things. That's not okay. true. The, 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 first of all, it was never VC capital. It's well, private equity. Capital. It's You're more late grossage. These are cash flowing assets. It's not VC. But my point is that um, the American shale investment dried up at a time of $50 oil prices. Um, they were, by the way, needing 55 break even. They now need 38 break even and they're getting 120. Now, oil can come back to 80, and it's still wildly profitable for right. U.S. shale and would be 30% less than where it is now at 80. So they most certainly have uh, options to increase production demand. The demand, as I've pointed out several times right now, and this is going to go higher, but so far, daily consumption is only where it was in 2019. It is not higher, which is one of the reasons I argue vehemently that this is not demand side inflation on the energy side. It is purely supply side. Right. But I think right. that can I can I uh, before Abe has something to say, but I just wanted to say one thing about the the shale and the fracking, which is that remember fracking as a as a as an industry didn't exist until two thousand and seven, and by tw by two thousand and twelve refineries were being built, you know, on the Gulf of Mexico that cost $6 billion a piece and were brought online and were exporting that we're talking about. There was so much money. This was such a fantastic field that they got stuff out of the ground in a, in pipes to Texas and out through the Gulf of Mexico in less than a decade. So, and that, all of that, modality but yeah but exists. when we wrote about this john for the magazine yeah. in 2019 when i wrote yeah. about it yeah by the time we started feeling the effects of the natural gas revolution and the glut of natural gas we were sitting on the investment for new wells had already dried up right but that was because of this that that's the that's the irony right of the success the irony of the success is that the shale brought prices down to such a degree 
that it was no longer that you know exploration was as david says was was became an iffy proposition because the price point was too low but if but this is now if you're at 130 100 potentially 140 dollars a barrel where are we going to go i mean obviously and and now we have an investment uh we may have investors but we have a hostile administration a hostile Democratic Party that will do what it can to gum up the works for new exploration. Abe, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, David, you and I uh, disagree, actually, about the fundamentals here regarding the, the Saudi situation. Um, I, I share with you certainly the, the, uh, the concern that our foreign policy be driven by, by uh, moral framework and definitely married to... Um, I don't want to say real politic, but a but a sort of practical consideration. Um, but the Saudis have indicated for years now. I mean, you know, MBS in particular that that they are interested in heading in a very different direction. And I think it would be a very good thing if Biden was sincere about wanting to repair uh, this relationship. My fear is actually that he's going there only as a charm offensive. Um, something sort of uh, Obama-esque uh, in, in play. Um, and that, I fear, could backfire because the Saudis want real deliverables for, uh, from the Biden administration at this point. They're not benefiting, in their minds, from a visit. They, MBS is the one that wasn't taking Biden's phone calls, not the other way around. This isn't, this isn't um, he's, he's not, this is no great favor to Riyadh, the, just, just the visit. They want to hear what's happening with the U.S. vis-a-vis Iran, um, how much longer they're going to have to uh, hear about uh, the, the killing of Khashoggi, um, what exactly the U.S. stance is in, in Yemen. And if, if the administration comes back after sorting, sort of fizz, fizzing out uh, over there, um, I think we we could then see some real problems. For, I'd like to some. add. I'm not I'm not sure though where we disagree, Abe. I think that um, the key development that we're not talking about is Saudi being willing to buy, excuse me, to sell China oil denominated outside of petrodollars. I don't believe that the U.S. would be going over there if it were not for Saudi's potential ability to disrupt the um, intermediation of, of oil uh, globally denominated in dollar by um, a leased pump faking that they were interested in denominating Chinese sales in Yuan. And that currency leverage that the US has enjoyed is a, has been a key part of this relationship of strategic convenience going back to World War II. Um, I think that if we were only talking about the U.S. favoring a sort of real politic relationship with Saudi versus capitulation to Iran, I totally agree with Noah that that's what they were trying to do. And I want to say I'm impressed that it didn't happen, that they wouldn't fold on what appears to have been the key contingency, that they were not going to, to change their classification in Iran. But there's no question that John Kerry would have done whatever he wanted, needed to do to get Iranian oil back online. And, and the appearance of this deal back. And so if I thought it was just a trade-off between Iran and Saudi, I would feel different. But I think that what is more at stake 
is that our leverage, the Saudi leverage in this relationship for 60 years went away. And I like that. I want us leaning so, into yes. our leverage, which is held in Oklahoma and Texas. Right. Well, I mean, to our leverage, the rise of fracking combined with um, uh, the, the Arab Spring and the defeat geopolitically of um, the irredentist Palestinian ambition to drive Israel into the sea. You add all that together with the with the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, you know, who is a, a, a young hothead, but somebody who apparently looks at his country's future and says everything here has been staked on this one commodity. Uh, and if we don't diversify our economy and make it into something, use use our leverage now to build something that can make us an economic powerhouse in other areas and in other arenas. And maybe I should be looking a little to my west and a little to my north, to the one successful tech country in the middle in my region that I'm supposed to hate and want to destroy. But you know what? I don't really hate him and I don't really want to destroy him. And Iran wants to destroy the two of us. And so the advert, I mean, we were suck uppy to the Saudis when we shouldn't have been. And then when Biden came along, he became adversarial toward the Saudis precisely at one of the few moments in history. Sorry. Uh, when we, when we shouldn't have been. Because the Saudis were reorienting their foreign policy toward a toward a kind of Western goal that had been seventy five years in the making, your 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 uh, your idea about the you know uh, very complicated stuff about uh, the Chinese and currency and sales uh, is uh, way above my pay grade. Uh, I just know the sort of standard geopolitics. Yeah, but I don't, John, I actually don't think, Sorry, I think again. you're, I think you you could get this real easily. I don't think it's that complicated. And I may have explained it in a way that sounded complicated. The U.S. benefits immensely from dollar denomination of oil. All um, energy commodities uh, are basically denominated in dollar. And that's been a part of the deal since World War II. And for the first time in my career, um, Saudi was publicly proclaiming a willingness to sell China oil denominated in Chinese currency. And that is a huge strategic advantage to China, not in their dealings with Saudi, but which they hold plenty of dollars. They could buy all the oil they want for a lifetime from Saudi in US dollar. It is the strategic advantage it gives China over the US that Saudi was for no benefit to Saudi only as a, a leverage point with the US monkeying around with. And the other piece that I think has to be brought up is there's been no comeuppance to Saudi for one of the most grotesque geopolitical acts that didn't kill anybody, but was an act of war on the United States economically. In March of 2020, our, Tom Hanks gets COVID. That's how bad things were. Our whole country shutting down. And those sons of bitches flooded the world with oil for five weeks straight in this little tandem with Russia. And the only reason it stopped is that the world was ending and it was going to bankrupt their own kingdom. But they were willing to do that at our moment of most weak vulnerability. And I believe that the, that, that to me is a thing that the Trump administration did not hold them accountable for. And the Biden administration has not either. 
Okay, so let, let's, if we move off the, the question of Saudis and energy, go to energy generally. Um, so we have two factoids about inflation, and you're very, uh, you're very firm on this point, which is that um, just at the moment at which the, you know, the entire country has now agreed to a very large extent that inflation is a problem the likes of which we haven't seen in 40 years. You note that the core CPI, right, which is CPI exclusive of energy and food, that the, that the increase in the core CPI is slowing down. It's not that it's shrinking or that it's falling, but that it is now moderating in its growth and that if we separate out the two, we get a, we have a we have a more rational and realistic portrait of the inflationary problem, which is energy and food, which is bad enough. Like let's not let's not you know mince words. You know if it costs you two hundred dollars more at the grocery store every week than it did the week before, that's a nuclear bomb in the you know in the center of the American household, no matter how you slice it. And gas prices above five dollars. You know, I just literally filled up my tank an hour ago at five twenty-five. You know, I mean, I can afford it. I have no choice. And like everybody else, I have no choice. But you know, I don't know how much it is in Kansas. In I, I did this in Connecticut. It's five twenty-five. You know, so these are these are devastating daily facts for people. But see if you can help us understand why the sense that this is like the late that we're we're heading toward the stagflation of the late 70s is now being belied by this core cpi growth slowdown yeah i don't know that it's being belied yet i most certainly think it will be A, a way i like to put it john is that i think headline inflation is much more important politically and and core inflation is much more important to markets and so since one of those things is my day job and the other one is my um, uh, kind of hobby that I hate, um, I kind of have to care a bit about both. Food and energy is all that's going to matter to voters. Um, and the bond market is all that's going to matter to investors. And so my um, relentless desire that I've totally given up on for months now, for those on the right to not parrot what we see in the headlines that is factually and empirically undeniable, but to understand why it's happening so that we can get things right into the future and avoid the mistakes of so many in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in American right-wing economics. That I've given up on as far as a national conservative narrative. I think that right now, all eyes are focused on where, on just hammering Biden with the inflation hammer. And even if conservatives let off on it, voters aren't going to. This is a presidency killer and it's undeniable. But it's three months of goods disinflation now. And so to, the vocabulary is that inflation is when the rate of growth of price increase is going higher. And disinflation is when the rate of growth of price increase is going lower. And deflation is when the rate of growth itself is going is negative. Well, you don't get deflated goods very often. I mean, you really have to be in a depression for us to get that. 
But um, as far as disinflation, we've had it for most of the last 20 something years. Japan's had it for about 30 years. And our uh, core, if you separate food and energy, which is the real problem here, um, one of the reasons services inflation picked up so much in the 8.6 CPI is the way they measure housing is so stupid that it's a lagging impact of renter uh, owner's equivalent. And everybody knows right now that housing is slowing down. But because the rents from last year were going higher, that they come up with this formula for what the equivalent would be into an owner's uh, expense. And that is a lagging impact into the services side of the inflation measurement. But the fact of the matter is that even with goods disinflation, it's high. All of this is politically problematic. My point is, if we want to say that Biden's stupid stimulus bill caused this or that the Fed has caused it, um, as opposed to viewing the supply side issues that I know to be at the heart of it, then I think we're missing the opportunity to not just label a problem, but to identify a solution. I think that is what the real opportunity is here is to be a solutions provider. And I don't see it from anywhere. So just to move ahead, since you mentioned the Fed. So tomorrow, supposedly, I guess it's tomorrow, we, we are anticipating a rate increase from the Fed, possibly as high as 75 basis points, which I think would be the first such move in 25 years, is it? 94, maybe 30 years? Greenspan did uh, some 50s, but he did uh, 194. And so- and 94, right. Yeah, that's right. So it's almost 30 years since there's been, will have been uh, a, a, a move as dramatic as this. Um, is this to be welcomed? Is it, I mean, the funny thing is you mentioned 2018, right? So in 2018, the Fed tightened. The market had its intraday crash in response to the Fed tightening, if I remember correctly, the one of the intraday crashes that you mentioned, and and they and they chickened out. They chickened out at starting to reverse the balance sheet problem that had been created by 10 years of quantitative easing. That was part of the reason was to start getting the American balance sheet back into back into order and the market reaction scared them and they stopped. So is what's happening here an effort to kill inflation? Is it to get the balance sheet back in order? Are the two totally intrinsically related? You can't do one without the other? Or are they just flying blind and just throwing a big number at this to see how it sticks? It's a classic case of them doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Um, besides Volcker in the early 80s, you haven't had a time where they raised rates and it lowered inflation. I have a chart going in the dctoday.com today indicating this. Every period of rising rates um, since Volcker has resulted in inflation rates being higher a year and two years later, not lower. I think that politically and cosmetically and optically, they have to do it. But the real benefit to them doing it is what I spoke to earlier, is just stopping this ridiculous distortion in asset prices. And, and so allowing something that resembles a more natural and neutral rate is very healthy for financial markets. 
Um, as we're sitting here right now, the CME futures market is showing a 95% probability that they will raise 75 basis points tomorrow. But what hasn't changed is the terminal rate. They're still going to stop where they were going to stop. It's just they're going to get there a little quicker. And so I see that as a good thing, but I don't see it as having any impact on a headline inflation for the simple reason that I don't think oil prices or wheat prices had anything to do with the Fed funds rate. So it's a good thing because it's cosmetic or it's a good thing because it's, no, it's ma a, macroeconomically efficient? It's a good thing because it provides um, a, a more realistic risk-free rate in financial markets. You want, for those of us in the Hayekian tradition of price discovery, um, things that distort natural prices in financial markets exacerbate boom and bust cycles. And we've been living in it my entire adult life. That's what the Fed has done, is they create booms and they create busts. But you, I think you use the expression, they find by the seat of their pants. And it's a cavalier expression to use about a bunch of PhD holding MIT and Harvard folks, but it is pretty much what I'm quite convinced the central bank does. They're smart at flying by the seat of their pants, but they're flying by the seat of their pants. Um, so let, let's, let, let's talk some, let's talk some like raw crappy politics. Uh, I mean, none of us is a real political prognosticate, you know, that's not, that's not who we are. We're, we're just people with an, you know, with a real interest in politics and, you know, we, we pay granular attention to politics. Um, and I, I, uh, I again, play the age card because I'm the only one of the the four of us on on this panel today who like vividly remembers living through the last period of high inflation. And there are bizarre parallels between the 70s and today that people haven't even really begun, haven't, haven't quite sussed out yet because it's not just uh, this, you know, inflationary spiral that began, you know, in the sort of in the early 70s and then the, the oil shock of 73, then sent it through the stratosphere. We had, you know, we had, I don't know, 18% inflation rate at one point because uh, oil prices went up fivefold. But at the same time in the country, you had a sense of leadership breaking down, lack of trust in institutions, a president that was increasingly looking like he had played fast and loose with the truth or possibly had been part of a criminal enterprise uh and rising crime urban decay uh and uh, uh liberal excuses for criminal activity and uh a kind of excuse being made for radical activity uh radical politics that spilled over into violence uh that it started in the 60s was continuing in, in through the 70s and that all of these things are kind of paralleled today America does not see, you know, with the exception of the fact that we're not in Vietnam, uh, obviously, uh, or having any thing like we're in Vietnam, but the sense, the sense in America was that America was degrading and that, and that decay was in a state of slow acting decay that was accelerating during the seventies. And I don't know whether that seems to you based on your granular study of the economics of the 70s to be something where we see parallels today the way i see political parallels today yeah i think there's a lot there um i, I think that culturally 
uh, the, you've identified something that would be most similar to the 70s in this belief that America is on a decline and this sort of pessimism about where we are headed as a society. And I don't think that we largely have that in the 80s or 90s. And then there is a sort of positive feedback loop that exists between the culture and the economy. And right now, a negative feedback loop. The culture seems to have a brighter outlook when economic times are good and vice versa. Um, where there is such a huge difference is being three years removed from Nixon pulling us off the gold standard in 71 to being you know, essentially over 50 years removed from it. Um, world markets are dramatically different. The, there was really not much of an emerging markets globally to speak of. Um, having 50% of the world in abject poverty to only 10%. There's just certain global macro conditions that are categorically different, but various elements of human nature don't change. I think that the economic conditions in America that are most different are all negative in a debt deflationary uh, scenario. That is that we, are, we were not in Nixon, Ford, and Carter at 130% debt to GDP. We were not uh, in the midst of 1.6% GDP growth um, and, and not talking about how excited we'd get if we could get to 2% real GDP growth. Now, granted the nominal GDP versus real GDP then was so different because of the high inflation level, but um, ultimately the uh, economic drivers of growth now are much more identifiable. And I believe our biggest problem is that we have spent ourselves into a position where it'll be very, very hard with the perfect policy prescription. If we could all we make our own sort of list of what we'd like to see, the kind of things a candidate for president does with their five point plan for economic growth and all that type of stuff. If we could wave a wand and get all of it, um, I don't believe that we could get to three, three and a half percent real GDP growth again with this debt overhang. And that was not the case in the 70s. So I would argue that there's reasons to be more negative than we were in the 70s and that we're still in the ditch digging. We're doing nothing to get out of it. And yet those things that are negative are different than they were in the 70s. Abe. Um you know, as, as our, as the, as the voice of common sense and the, the thing that you've been saying for the last couple of weeks about why there may be a resurgence in a certain type of conservative worldview, which is that people are experiencing real problems, not theoretical problems, and that they're practical pocketbook problems that mark a real change, even though, you know, we know, okay, Macroeconomically, the 21st century has been a very complicated and problematic one. There hasn't been a lot of wage growth. There's been a lot of stagnation. There was obviously a terrible, you know, meltdown in the middle of it and all of that. But that this is, there's something different about your purchasing power degrading by the day in the single most expensive thing that you buy every week, which is gasoline. There's something different and that when you then turn around and have the left pushing he, her pronouns, rather than, you know, I mean, I, 
you know, there's all this talk that the right is the, you know, uh, the right is, is, is the creator or the benefit, whatever, of the culture war. But the simple fact of the matter is that most of that is defensive in nature and uh, against leftist sort of advances in the cause that, that the right seeks to retard. And they have nothing to say on any of these, uh, on this major point. So what does that say to you about these parallels or, you know? Well, I mean. Speaking as you know, for the common man, because you are, I, you are yeah. one, you were one with the common man. I'm, I'm, I, it, it, I'm, I regret to uh, echo David's uh, somber tone here, but, but I think politically and culturally things are also kind of more grave today, to be honest. Um, there are other elements at work that didn't exist uh, back in the 70s and societal evident, uh, elements um, in the obsession with identity being one of them and the, the campaign to go to war with the fabric of reality. That's a very damaging thing that 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 has untold cascading effects and has um, that is not something we saw uh, there's an anti-work movement now um, which is something new and unbelievably dispiriting this idea yeah, there was, that there was that, the hippie the hippies were full of the hippies were full of anti-work by the way there, but, you, mean, but yeah. hippies are very dismissible when they don't want to work okay uh, 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 New York Times columnists and op-ed writers are, are less so, you know, when they when they make the case for there being no dignity or value in work. Um, and this is something we've said before. There is now a, an anti-establishment left, as there was then, and an anti-establishment right. Um, so this this again, this 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 is a this puts a new kind of destabilizing pressure on things. So, so yeah, it's we're, we're sort of seventies turbocharged, but but as David says, but different. I mean, the thing about the seventies was that uh, the America hating that we see now was very prevalent in the seventies. Uh, disruptive social policies, uh, social engineering policies, imposed from the top that drove the bottom crazy and had large, very large outsized political effects. Uh, CRT is just the modern equivalent of busing. It's the it's the imposition of an ideology on small children, using children as chess pieces to make a larger political point. And parents hate it, and they hated it then. They hate it now, and it had a very serious effect, far out far outweighing the actual practical effect, maybe of like CRT and and even busing. Um, but is there is there a something analogous to trans activism? Um, or is that totally well, new? 100%? Again, I, I mean, it's just well, LGBT I what, activism. It was just gay yeah, rights well, and feminism. Gay wave rights feminism. was gay rights wasn't even really. I mean, radical yeah. feminism had some quality like Trent. That is, you know, uh, the Betty Free Dance. Um, no, but beyond beyond Betty Friedan, I mean, the, the word, you know, the idea that sex was rape, uh, that was Susan Brown Miller's Against Our Will that was published in 1975, that all sex is rape, all heterosexual sex is rape, you could say, is a version in degree, 
though obviously not in kind, of the kind of radical re-understanding of things that, you know, that, that no one had ever like really said before. And that you, you say, oh my God, that's crazy. And then that book won the Pulitzer Prize and sold a million copies. So Noah, where, where are you on all this? I uh, mean, my very cursory understanding of economic history leads me to be slightly more sanguine than I, than I suppose everybody else is on this panel. The economy that we have now is vastly more dynamic than it was in the 1970s. It is vastly less dependent on manufacturing, larded up, protectionist industries that employed a lot of people and hemorrhaged money. Um, it is uh, far more invested in service uh, services and the export of services. And it is, uh, it is the investment climate is uh, far more um, risk prone uh, to a degree that I think uh, in, enhances our capacity to innovate and to develop new sectors as we've seen throughout the last 20 years in ways that surprise just about anybody who uh, looks at you know our, our macroeconomic, macroeconomic circumstances and tries to perform an evaluation of how they're going to perform in the next 10 to 15 years, which is very difficult to do. And in the event that we can restore price stability with some interest rates that cool the economy to a degree that we have a, a small recession, I don't think a recession is avoidable, a small recession, that reduces demand to the extent that it catches up with supply, then we have something approaching price stability. And I'm, I don't think that's something that's outside the realm of, of uh, imagination. Now, from the political economy, the extent to which these new philosophies, and which aren't really all that new, they're just manifesting in different ways and in different coalitions, but are nevertheless destabilizing. I'm with you. I think they're terrible. But does that affect our economic dynamism and our capacity to catch up? With uh, with you know where we were four years ago, I don't think that's going to be much of a of a problem as long as we get the policy right. I mean, I think that's a very good object. That 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 is that is actually the perfect. Obviously, the economy is vastly more mature. It's vastly broader. It it employs wildly more people. The size. I mean, our GDP growth. I think what is our GDP three times what it was in nineteen. Growing a lot slower than it was in the post war years. Sure. But growing the yeah. less. Well, it's, gro it's growing I mean, at half of have, that rate. Right. It's growing at half of that rate. But we do have an economy that is $24 trillion in size. And 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 you know, we have a we have a a nation of 330 million people with an unemployment with an unemployment rate of three and a half percent. I mean, you know, yep. the country was half the size with half the size of the economy. And you know, it's some, you know, it's an amazing accomplishment to have this economy going even even with the hampering confusions and a lot of what we're talking about here has to do with sort of uh, making sure that uh, things don't get sclerotic late this is I think David your greatest fear right is the sclerosis that we've seen in Japan that is you know almost you know in your your view is like baked into the cake uh, unless something radical or dramatic happens uh, that this kind of secular, uh, secular, slow or no growth world that that has afflicted Japan for three decades is our future, absent some dramatic change in our understanding of that question of how much debt the country can actually carry, and I how much our debt service takes over takes over any possible dynamism. I think that there are kids that are capable of getting C's that get D's and it's disappointing and that's Japan. And there are kids that are capable of getting A's 
that get B minuses or Cs. And, and the fact that the Japan is D students and we're C students does not make me feel better about the fact because I think the capability, the capacity for economic vibrancy, dynamism and productivity is A student-like. And so we are living below our potential. I agree with Noah 100%. The economic diversity and the capacity for productive growth and innovation is monumental. But this is the part that is totally non-controversial. All economic growth is, is population plus productivity. And we have decided to go into a fertility decline in our country that we were not doing in the 70s. We were not doing in the 60s. We certainly weren't doing in the 80s. And now since 2007, we decided to go from about 2.2 to 1.6 kids per household and to have those households themselves wait an extra 10 years to get married, start having kids, so forth and so on. So there's a demographic headwind combined with a productivity headwind that is not because we lack the economic dynamism, innovation, or capability. It's because savings equals investment. Investment equals productivity and productivity equals growth. And you can't get savings when you have to constantly force your monetary policy to the zero bound, financial repression. You can't get savings at a zero interest rate. And the only solution to a government at 130% debt to GDP will end up being more financial repression. We're not doing it now because they have an inflationary spike. So they have to go deal with this cyclical matter. But on a secular basis, decade over decade, like when you talk about the whole decade of the 70s, they're not going to let our government finance deficits at 5% for 10 years. Does anybody really believe that? That, that, that Jay Powell is going to be Paul Volcker and we're going to run. When Reagan left office, the 10-year treasury bond was at 9%. Does anyone really think that our country can afford that? We have added layer upon layer upon layer of debt and it has to be serviced. And thank God we're a student capable because we have a lot of productivity to do it with, but we're going to live below our potential and it breaks my heart. And I think it's a moral issue as much as an economic one, only thirdly a political one. Well, David, you have joined the crushing morosity band. I'm you, the, why you're an honorary member of our, here we are. Um, we've been, I don't know. Sometimes we're, sometimes we, we break out of it and are a little cheerful, but you have brought us to the low that everybody who listens to this podcast over the last fight should expect to conclude the podcast depressed, defeated, and with a sense that, you know, there's, there, there's no hope. So I thank you so much. Does it cheer everyone up if I say that things are better than ever for the top 20%? <laughs> uh, I'm not discussing the demographics of this show's audience. I think everybody can implicitly guess as, as, as to the demographics of the show's audience. So some of this may be more academic uh, to them than it is to the people who are actually suffering the consequences of this horrible policy that has been often floated for the benefit of people who could, hey, let's just borrow $100 million of one. Per Why not? That's like free money. Well, if you can't borrow it, you don't get the benefit of the free money and you get all the consequences of the money being too free. Anyway... But thank you so much, uh, everybody. Of course, get uh, David's book, 
there's no free lunch. You hear me talk about it a couple times a week, and you'll continue to hear about that. Uh, and for Abe and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.